Good morning, Midtown. How are we doing today? We good? Let's go ahead and stand up on our feet. My name is Jillian. I'm visiting from New Life East. Always such a joy to be with this house. We're just going to praise the Lord together. Amen. This is what we do.
praise God here this morning. Come on, give him a shout. Give him a shout. Hey! We praise you, Lord. It's good for us just to take a breath just to praise the Lord because that, friends, is what we've been created to do. That is to bless the name of the Lord. Well, good morning, friends. We're glad you're here in the house of the Lord. Can I hear an amen? amen. Good. We're alive. We're ready. Listen, uh, the Bible speaks about the transcendence of God. That means that God is high above. He's exalted. He's great. He's the ultimate creator, the bigness of God. And yet the Bible also speaks about the imminence of God and that he is with us presently in time and space. And he's here with us and near with us right now. And as we've been going through the book of John, it's been fascinating just to see the transcendence this bigness and the imminence, this closeness of God found through the person of Jesus Christ. In John's gospel, it starts off saying, in the beginning was the word, the divine logos. Jesus is the creator. He's been, he's been uh, here throughout it all. Jesus is God. And then the Bible continues to say, and the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. That's the nearness of Jesus. That's the nearness of our God. And I just felt it was my assignment today just to remind each and every person here or those watching online that God, yes, as big as he is, as great as he is, he is also near to us right now. Scripture says that he is near to the brokenhearted. Friends, if your heart is broken right now, the issues of life, if they're circling, if they're swirling in your life right now, I've got good news. The Lord is near to you here today, and you can call upon him. So let's keep a fresh and holy imagination upon Jesus, the God who's been revealed in the scriptures, who heals our diseases, who forgives all our sins, who crowns us with loving kindness. Can we keep our eyes focused on him today? And, and in response to that, let's read the word of God where it speaks about Jesus' transcendence and his evidence, his greatness and also his nearness. Let's read Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15 together. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through and for Him. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Friends, can we just pray just to enter into that message? Lord Jesus, all things have been reconciled to you. Because of the, your, your sacrifice on the cross of Calvary, we now have peace here today knowing that you are Lord over it all. Your kingly rule will have no end, no end. And we say today, in this space that you reign, Jesus, you reign. You reign over our darkness. You reign over our sickness. You reign over our lack and our poverty. You reign over it all, Lord God. You fight our battles. We believe that this morning. And Jesus, we keep our eyes on you today as we sing to you and pray. In your holy name, we pray and say, amen. Amen, church. All right, we got a new song we want to teach you here this morning. 
So I need you to do me a favor. Can you clap just like this? Now try to keep that time. <laughs> fights our battles.
every battle for us. We can rest in him. Jehovah Jireh, who meets every need according to the will of God. We don't have to worry about lack. We have everything that we need in our great God. And he's also Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who is healing our bodies. Keep our eyes on you, Jesus, as the healer, the great restorer. And finally, you're the Lord, our peace. Even when the storms of life are coming against us, you are our peace. Peace is not the absence of problems. It is your presence, Lord God, your nearness. Let's sing it again. Call your name. Call the name.
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's just take the time to tell the Lord how much we love him. Come on, open up your mouth and tell God how much you love him. Come on. All over the building. Lord, we love you. We magnify you. We glorify you. We love you, God, for just life itself. We love you for who you are and what you're doing. Father, we love you. We love you. We love you. We love you. And we come in this place, God, to give your name glory, to worship you, to praise your name, Father, to just say thank you for what you have done for us. Say thank you for what you are doing for us. God, we just love you. Come on, come on. Tell them how much you love them. 
Come on, don't be silent. This is your opportunity to tell the Lord how much you love him. God, we love you. We just bless your name, God. Every opportunity that we get, we're going to bless your name. Every opportunity, we're going to praise your name. We're going to tell you how much we love you. Thank you, Father, for being our God. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for bringing us from a mighty long way. Thank you for delivering us, God. We just love you for that. And we say thank you. Hallelujah. We bless your name, Father. We bless you in this place, God. We bless your name, Father. We give your name glory this morning. We praise you with all that's within me. I will bless the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for just being an almighty God. You're Jehovah Nisi, the Lord that fights our battles. You're Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals us. You're Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. And God, we just say thank you for being our peace. Hallelujah. We bless your name. We give you glory. We give you honor and we give you praise. Psalms 18 said, I will love you, O Lord, with my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from all my enemies. I'm going to bless the Lord this morning. Hallelujah. He's worthy to be praised. Do you agree with that? I say, do you agree with that? He's worthy to be praised. There you go. Give God some praise in this place. Bless his holy name. He's worthy. He's worthy. I know, I know, I know. Many of us have been in the boxing ring of life. And I hear the Lord say, cast all your care upon me because I care for you, saith the Lord. Cast them this morning. Cast your care. Don't leave with that care on your shoulders. But we in the boxing ring of life, and I was encouraging our team this morning that when you're in that boxing ring and you're just getting beat up in life and, and you're, getting, you're having all these contusions, your eyes are swollen and there are cuts there. One good thing is that there's no mirror in the boxing ring. Because if I saw what my face looked like, I might not want to continue. But then there's a break. And during that break, you have what is called a corner man. That corner man is strategic. He has studied the opponent. But one good thing about the, a good corner man is going to encourage you no matter what you look like. A good corner man is going to make small adjustments so when you get back in that ring, you can go and fight that battle. And I'm here to tell you that I'm your corner man this morning. God is for you. Who can be against you? God is with you every step of the way. He's the one that's giving you the victory. You can win. All you got to do is stay on your feet and get back up. God is with us. Amen. I'm telling you, that corner man knows how to encourage you and build you up and send you back in there. And he knows how to give you the victory. All you have to do is listen to the corner man. Oftentimes in life, we are not listening to our corner man, but we're listening to our opponent. Stop listening to the words and the lies of the, our opponent. He can't win. We are already victorious. He's a defeated foe. Amen. We're going to tune our ears to listen to the corner man. And that's Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Come on, give God some praise in here this morning. Hallelujah. He's worthy to be praised. I'm excited about my corner man. I know that I can get up when it, when it knocks me down. I know I can get up. 
Don't be afraid nor dismayed, for the battle is not yours, saith the Lord, but it's God's. Amen? So go out tomorrow and face that enemy with boldness, knowing that God is with us. We can't fail. Amen? We may fall, but we can't fail. Oh, glory to God. I'm excited in this place. Amen? So when the corner man say give, yeah, give. Your corner man is saying give. Amen? given to the Lord this morning. He's given so much unto us that we are able to give unto him. Amen. This morning, we also uh, have our giving liturgy that we like to recite and we like to pray into. So God will continue to posture our hearts, if you will, with me. Father, you are the giver, the abundant giver of all good things. Train us to delight in holy dependence. Lead us to honor you with all our resources Free us from the deceitfulness of greed and earthly riches. Teach us to give generously with open hands and joy-filled hearts, that we might receive abundantly and flourish for the sake of others and your purposes in the earth. Amen. Amen. Now, there are four ways that you give in this house. I believe they already came on the screen. Amen. I'm your corner man. Give. God will not fail. He will keep you. Amen. He will keep you in his peace. Amen. If you would, grab your little ones together with you. I know that they are learning there. My daughter was in class. One time, I think I told this before, and they was going through uh, Hispanic uh, Heritage Month. And everybody in the class spoke a different language. She said, I speak a different language, too. And I was like, you speak, a, okay, what, what, what are we talking? She said, I speak English and I speak Holy Ghost. I speak in tongues. I said, come on, girl, you learning in them classes. Let's go. Let's get some Holy Ghost up in here. We all speak a different language, amen? We're going to pray over our children. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Children, you are released. Go and learn of the Lord. Let me see you skip. Are they still teaching that? I don't know if they're still teaching how to skip. Amen. Amen. Well, it's so good to have you with us this morning. If this is your very first time, welcome, welcome, welcome. We love receiving you here. At this moment, at this time, we're going to take a few moments just to greet and meet one another. And like I always say, meet somebody that you don't know. It might turn into a lifetime relationship. Amen.
morning, New Life Midtown. It's great to see you all this morning. My name is Lauren Oscom, and I just have a few announcements for you today. This Wednesday night is a worship night. You won't want to miss it. Every time we get together for a worship night, it's just powerful. So come on out, 6.30 here at Midtown. We'll see you there. Ladies of the House, our biggest event of the year is coming up in just a few months, our Kindred Encounter Weekend. You can go to the foyer right after service and sign up. We have a promo code for $20 off today, and spots are limited. So don't hesitate. Don't wait to sign up. It's going to be an amazing weekend. We have a ton of stuff that goes on here during the week, from men's prayer to women's prayer to GC youth group. And if you want to know more about that, just jump on our website, midtown.newlifechurch.org. We'll, tr we'll try that again. Good morning, Midtown. It is good to see you. And it is also good to have my wife and her colleagues home from Southeast Asia. Yes. <clears throat> Lots of amazing ministry and just a small case of Montezuma's revenge. That's all. It was a fantastic trip from all that I've heard so far. So welcome back, ladies. We're excited to have you. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I just had a young man come up and introduce himself to me right there and said, hey, I'm new to your church. Man, I love that. Fantastic. David, right? And uh, yeah, we long for people to come into this house and feel so welcomed and so apart that they're willing to even do that kind of thing. I love that. I think that's fantastic. If you are new here, in just a couple of weeks, we're going to have New Life Next which is after second service, it's a one-hour meeting with a meal. We have childcare, and it's a place where we can share who we are, and you can ask questions uh, of us. You can share some of your story, etc. and we would love for you to join us if you are looking for a home church here in the city of Colorado Springs where there are upwards of like 700 churches, and I think most of them are really great. So if you're looking here, welcome, and if God leads you elsewhere, be blessed and go bless another house in this city. That would be amazing. Today we are in the sixth installment of our series from the book of John, and for those of you who are doing math like Steve Randalls, you're thinking at some point we're going to have to start skipping some chapters here. And you are not wrong. It's just not today. Today we're in chapter 6. So go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles. We're going to read the first chunk from John chapter 6. It'll be up on the screens. But I would encourage you, if you have a physical Bible, go ahead and turn to John chapter 6. Just so that you don't forget where the books are, you know? Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. When Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with the disciples, <clears throat> excuse me, the Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great a crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, smoke up, spoke up. I love that it's smoke up. That was, I don't know. I don't know. Welcome to church, guys. Pastor Jade set the precedent a few weeks ago when he made that joke, for those of you who are here. Um, 
But I love how in the, in the moment of exposing some of the weakness of the disciples, it's Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. It's just, you know, don't lose track of kinship there for the dumb response. But here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who receded as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by all of those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow our heads and pray before we get into the sermon. Holy Spirit, you are the one who points us to Jesus and reveals Jesus. We ask today that you would open our hearts and open our eyes and our minds. And would you fill those with the revelation of Jesus the Christ, Son of the living God? Would you reshape and reform misguided images of Jesus? Images of lack, where there is abundance. God, I pray that you would open us up that as we leave this place today, you would pour from us that which you have poured into us today, that we might be your bread and your wine to a hungry and thirsty and hurting and broken world. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I feel a little bit more of a sincerity and a tenderness than I did in first service. Uh, But this passage, this passage is a beautiful passage in the second half of this passage, which we're going to read in a couple of minutes. It's kind of a show and tell where Jesus shows them something and naturally, like is almost always true in the book of John, actually in all four of the gospels, they don't really grasp what is happening. No one is grasping what Jesus is trying to reveal. So he shows them and then he tells them. He shows them and then he tells them. And Jesus does this over and over and over again. And this is the beginning of a long passage about food, about bread. And as I was thinking about food and bread and our society, I kind of hopped on Google this week and did a little bit of research as to when and how fast food became so prevalent in our society. Now, if you've lived in this country for more than just a few months, that you know that at this point in time, if there's a four-lane road and an intersection, there's going to be a fast food restaurant of sorts. And now, thank God, we're getting kind of healthier versions of fast food restaurants. But do you know that fast food restaurants actually came about on the heels of the invention of the highway and interstate system in the 1950s and 60s? So as American engineering was expanding and we were learning how to travel more efficiently, there was a market. There became a market for if people are now going to be driving these long distances all on you know, one straight long highway, then at all of the exits, we should put food sources so that people could drive and eat efficiently. This is brilliant. This is American engineering at its finest and at its best. But what I find so interesting 
is that as a society, though fast food over the last five or six decades has tried to make eating all about efficiency and utility, something inside of us has ultimately resisted that from happening. And if you don't believe me, just turn on Netflix and see that about one out of every four shows is something to do with food. Documentaries about food sourcing, about the best and worst diets, which, by the way, there are opposing views on all of those. Whichever one you're adhering to, good luck. hope it doesn't kill you. <laughs> there are four- and five-star restaurants popping up at a greater rate than have ever before. So why is this that the American model of efficiency, do more with less in everything that you can do, maximize potential, squeeze every dollar, every minute, milk everything for all that you can. In that kind of a society, how is it that there is still a growing market for slowing down to grow food, slowing down to eat food? How is it that Still, for most of us, the most important conversations we will ever have in our lives are around a meal. Why is it that still the biggest business deals, the biggest interviews, most first dates all still happen where? Over a meal. Because there is something inherently intimate about eating. There is something communal. The Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann, don't try and say that, nor should you try and spell it, it's even harder, says that eating is the last natural sacrament. In other words, there's something happening when we partake in food and drink, particularly together. There is more that is happening than just the nourishing of our bodies. And God has designed it this way. Think about just in scripture. The beginning of our story, Adam and Eve are created, and then we have what we know as the fall. What does the fall happen over? Food. The fall happens over food. Fast forward just a little while, and we have the story of Jacob and Esau, and Jacob conning Esau out of his blessing. How? Over a meal. Then fast forward a little longer, the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt, We've had all the plagues, and finally Pharaoh's ready to let the people go. And on the eve before God does the great work of the Exodus, what does he ask his people to implement? A meal called the Passover, with all of these specifications. And then they finally get out into the wilderness, and they're like, awesome. Wait, not so much. We're super hungry and thirsty. And God goes, yeah, I thought about that. Here's some manna. And he rains down manna from heaven. Once again, food and drink in the wilderness, a sign of God's nearness, a sign of God's provision. Fast forward all the way to the end, to the book of Revelation chapter 3. There's a verse most of us know, at least the first half, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens the door, I will come in and not just save his or her soul, but I will, one gentleman in the first service yelled out, Sup with him, which I I said, yes, a good old King James reader. Fantastic. (laughs) I don't know what supping is, but no, I do. Because I'm from the South where we have supper, not dinner. So I knew what supping was. But Jesus will come in and eat with him or her. There is something inherent in food, even in Scripture. It's from beginning to end. Eating is not just a metaphor. But it's a part of God's design for us to be reminded 
of our dependence and our deeper hunger for him. This is the thesis of today's sermon. I promise it won't be a lecture, nor will it be a TED Talk. But I just want to tell you where we're going right here from the beginning. That there is a hunger in every single one of us that because of sin and because of death entering into the world, we are prone to wanting to fill that hunger without actually recognizing it or naming it for what it is with anything we can get our hands on. And at the end of the day, Jesus comes as the only capital B bread of life, the only one who can satiate the deepest hunger of our souls in our lives. And so today, I am proposing that Jesus is the bread of life. Why? Because he says that he is. So I want to go back and look at this passage we just read. This is one of the few stories in all four Gospels. I believe it's the only story in all four Gospels apart from the events of Holy Week, the Passion. And that should tell us something right away. But what's even more unique is that the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell the story in a very similar way. And John has a whole bunch of added different details that I think give us insight into what John is wanting to do. If you remember from the first couple of sermons in this series, we talked about what John's intention is. And he tells us at the end of the book, in John chapter 20, he tells us that I have written all of these things that you might believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that you might receive his life. So John's agenda through his whole book is to show us who Jesus is, And show us what his life is like. So that when his life is happening in us and around us, we can recognize it as the work of God. And we can partner with it. We can encourage it. We can add our faith to it. As Sidron said, we can be the corner man. So right here, we have some clues. John is giving us clues to who Jesus is and what his life is like. The first, in verse 3 and 4, one of the uniquenesses in John's gospel is that he attaches this story to the Passover, which none of the other three do. What is the story of the Passover? It's the story of deliverance, of salvation. John is giving us an insight into, hey, I know this passage seems like it's just about making more food to feed hungry people, but there's something in this passage that if you look long and hard enough is actually about how God works to deliver and save his people beautiful thing. Verse 5, Jesus initiates the question to the disciples. In the other tellings of this story, the disciples kind of figure out, we don't have enough, you think? But in this one, Jesus knows what he wants to do, but he also wants to see where the disciples are at. Because the disciples are on their own journey, just like you and I are on a journey, just like the crowds in the book of John. They're all on a journey of discovering and discerning Who is Jesus and what is his life like? And so John gives us this little insight where Jesus wants to see, where are they? What have they learned about me? And this is really interesting when you think that just John chapter 2, there's a really similar story of Jesus turning water into wine. Okay, so one is food and one is wine. But in both instances, Jesus takes a little bit of what is available, yet not near sufficient for all, and he makes what is more than an abundance for the people that are there. 
So you would think the disciples, after just having been with Jesus a couple of chapters, likely weeks, maybe months prior, have just seen Jesus turn water into wine. Jesus sets them up. I mean, the ball is on like a T-bowl post, you know, it's, and they still don't get it. All they see is the lack and the need. And it's not just the disciples. As we continue to read, we will learn that the crowd only sees what Jesus is doing on a surface level. I just realized I am freezing cold. You all cold in here? Verse 9, this is the only gospel where the kind of bread is mentioned. That might seem insignificant to you, but these are called barley loaves. All I knew about barley before this was that I didn't really like it. I'm not really into like sourdough and barley and all the crazy stuff. I can act like I am. I'm not that cultured, y'all. Okay? Like I said, I'm from the South. We eat rolls. That's what we do. And sometimes sweet rolls and cornbread. Yes, we do. That's what we eat. Barley. I didn't know much about barley, but a little bit of research goes a long way, y'all. You can do this at home, too. You have computers. Barley was the food of the poor. Barley was the food that was readily available everywhere. And what we learn in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is constantly looking for ways to pull those who were outcast into what he's doing. Remember John chapter 2 also, the, the story of turning water into wine? Who are the only people who know what Jesus is doing and get to participate? The servants. Those who at a wedding feast are the most invisible people around. And here, Jesus draws in the meal, the very simple meal of who is likely a very poor boy to feed all of these people. And Jesus is saying, I will use anyone who is in front of me, anything that is in front of me who is available. Whatever is available. Jesus doesn't need high quality ingredients. He doesn't need the most talented people. Jesus doesn't need people in high positions of authority or people with lots of money. Jesus will use whatever and whoever is available at his disposal. And we see this over and over again in the book of John. Verse 11, Jesus himself distributes the loaves. In the other versions of this story, who distributes the food? The disciples distribute the food. But in this story, think about the world's longest communion line. It's as if we took both services from all eight New Life congregations and lined them up for one communion attendant to serve them all. But that's the picture that John gives us here, is Jesus walks out into the crowd and is distributing the food. It might seem like an insignificant detail, but what might it be communicating? That in the Gospel of John, more than any other Gospel, Jesus has more one-on-one encounters with, with people. We good? Oh yeah, we're good. I was like, nobody's behind me, are they? Am I about to get jumped up here? <clears throat> Thank you, Greg. That Jesus in the Gospel of John, in the very beginning, in John chapter 1, Jesus is the Word from the beginning. The transcendence, as Pastor Seth spoke of just a moment ago. But also, more common in the book of John, is Jesus coming to individual people, having moments of intimacy, moments of encounter. So much so that in a crowd of 5,000, Jesus doesn't outsource the provision. Jesus himself walks around to every hungry person and is giving them exactly what they need. What a beautiful picture. 
And then in verse 12, there are 12 baskets left over. Now, this detail is not necessarily unique to all of these. And, the, and theologians and scholars get into all kinds of speculation here, some of which is fascinating and valid to read. But I think what's really important is back to our first point, that John ties this event to the Exodus. John ties this event to God's provision to save and to free his people. So what he's saying here is when God goes to work on behalf of his people, no matter what it is, there's more than enough for everyone. That this isn't just for a select few. It isn't just enough for everyone to have a bite, as Philip speculated. That Jesus feeds them until they are full, until every person has had enough. And then there's leftovers for those who weren't even there. When God works, this is how he works. And each one of these points could prove to be their own sermon, but there is one thing that I want to draw out from this sermon for today, and it is perhaps the most simple thing. And that is that Jesus bridges the material and spiritual divide. There was an idea during this time that is still prevalent today, though not typically associated with the name, and that is Gnosticism. The idea of Gnosticism is that the physical world, material everything, is at odds with the spiritual world. And the only way to grow in spirituality is to renounce and resist everything physical. Because the physical is inherently trying to draw back against or oppose that which is spiritual. And Jesus resists this from the get-go. Jesus, we've already read in chapter 2, turned water into wine. Why? To enhance and prolong a party. Jesus clearly disagrees with this. Here, once again, Jesus could have snapped his fingers or breathed on the people as he will do at the end of this uh, book of John. He will breathe on them and say, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus could have breathed on them and said, be ye no longer hungry, or however he spoke in King James English. But Jesus doesn't do that. What does he do? He actually takes the time. He searches out resources. Resources are brought to him. He multiplies actual bread. Why? Because everything his father created was blessed. Jesus cares about your life. He cares about your physical needs. He cares about when your body is sick, when your body is tired, when your relationships are fractured. When money is scarce, when your car is in the shop, when things break down at home, Jesus cares about those things. Jesus doesn't say, quit worrying about those things. The spiritual things are more important. That's not the God that we serve. If that's the God that you've been told about, that's not the God revealed in Jesus Christ. That's not the God who created the world and called it blessed. Jesus cares about our actual nourishment and our actual well-being. But the other thing is that Jesus doesn't pit these things against each other and say that one is greater. He integrates them. He synthesizes them. Jesus says, you were created holistic beings. And if you weren't here last week, I'd really encourage you to listen to John chapter 5 message. Pastor Jade did an amazing job talking about the distinction between healing or being cured and wholeness. Jesus cares about our wholeness because we are integrated human beings. We are not just bodies. We are not brains on a stick. And we are not spirits. We are whole persons, human beings. 
And Jesus uses the material to speak to something that is much deeper in the spiritual. So what do we see here in this chapter? We see that Jesus bridges the material and spiritual divide to ultimately teach them about the hunger that they have that they can't yet name. They know they're hungry literally when they're sitting out there on the mountainside. They've been following Jesus around. They got that part. So Jesus provides for them in a way that satiates that hunger. It fills their actual stomachs. And Jesus does that because he cares about them, but he also cares about the deeper hunger that they are experiencing, but they can't yet name. And so Jesus does this miracle, and then he does this cool little trick in the middle, I'm just kidding, where he walks on water, and they're like trying to find him. We're going to skip over that passage. It's an amazing passage passage to preach, but it's not my assignment today. And then we come to verse 25, back in chapter 6. So once again, look in your Bibles, verse 25. We're going to read through verse 40. So when they found him on the other side of the lake, because the sun went down and Jesus was on one side of the lake, and Jesus did this little thing that was really cool that only he could do, and he walked on the lake to the point where the disciples were in the boat, and they allowed him into the boat, which I think is really funny. The text says that they let him into the boat. Like Jesus could have just flicked his finger and flipped their boat upside down, and they let him into the boat. So Jesus gets onto the boat and goes to the other side with the disciples. Well, the next morning, they're looking around for Jesus, and they can't find him. And they're like, he went deeper into the mountains. He didn't go this way. So they start looking for him, and sure enough, they find that he indeed did go this way. So they find Jesus, and they say, when they found him, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? Verse 26, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. More on that verse in a minute. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that, endure, uh, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, as John says throughout his gospel time and time again, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? How dense are these people, y'all? Don't laugh too much because we're just like them. Amen. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus is like, did y'all not pay attention to what I literally just did? Just because it didn't come from heaven because it came from my hand? You don't recognize that this is the similar thing as what happened with Moses? So Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, 
and I will raise them up at the last day. Man, there's a lot in this passage. Here's the good news right up front. The good news about this people, this crowd, is that they were seeking Jesus fervently. I mean, the Sea of Galilee is not huge, but it was some serious tracking down that they had to do to find Jesus. And we're talking a group of people. They were intent on finding him. But what Jesus tries to reveal is that there's actually something misguided in their following him that he wants to expose. And I want to propose to you that we in this kind of church, in this kind of circle, the charismatic circles that we live in, are prone to the same kind of error. And that is, in verse 26, Jesus tells them, You're following me not because you perceived the sign, but because I made bread and filled your bellies. In other words, Jesus is saying, You love the miracles, but you're not seeing what the miracles are actually pointing to. What are signs? Signs are something that point to something else. If you see a sign that says Denver straight ahead, it doesn't mean you've arrived at Denver. And what Jesus is saying is that you've seen these signs, but you haven't seen the depth of them for what they are. You've seen that I provided food, that I filled your bellies, and you want more of that. Which is why when Jesus says, the work of my Father is that you believe in me, they say, well, what else can you do to show us to believe in you? Because what they're most interested in is the miraculous, not the identity of Jesus behind the things that he is doing. And you and I are in danger of the same kind of pursuit of Jesus. And it is not wrong to pray for miracles. It is not wrong in any way, shape, or form to long for God to do things that you and I cannot do. That is how our relationship with God is supposed to be. But sometimes, as we see later in this chapter beyond what we're going to read, when the going gets tough, they go, Jesus, that's just too much for us. If you're not going to keep doing these kinds of things, then life was pretty all right before you came along anyways. Your identity means that we're going to have to do some really hard things to keep following you. We love it when you're multiplying bread and fishes, We love, love, love it when you're turning water to wine at parties. I mean, what's not to love? Except for the Pentecostals, I understand. And the Baptists, I got it. I got it. But when this same Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, I'm not really as interested anymore. There are two kinds of pitfalls that I think we have to be aware of when we misperceive the identity of Jesus behind the things that we see him doing. The first one is pursuing material solutions to fill a deeper relational void. And this is what the culture and the world all around us is doing all the time. And most of us in this room, if this is not your first time here, if you've been in church, I don't know, more than five or six weeks, then hopefully you have heard the good news that Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the Son of God, the one who came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. But when we're out there and the pressures are pulling us to more and more and more and better and bigger and more over and over and over again, even though we know money and stuff will not fill the relational void, it's so hard to resist. 
I watched a YouTube video yesterday or the day before. Uh, one of these interview, you know, young guys who walks around in famous places, London, New York City, whatever. He was in a hotel lobby and he recognized a well-known basketball player. The guy's seven foot tall, kind of easy to recognize him also. And he comes up and says, hey, can I ask you a couple of questions? And he says, sure, go, I, I, got a, I got a minute, ask me your question. And he goes, what would you tell a young man like me who wants to be successful? And this basketball player looked down at him and said, not metaphorically down at him, just literally down at him. He looked down at him and said, you know what? Lots of money comes with lots of problems. I don't know if the guy's a believer or not, but he has experienced the hamster wheel of trying to fill a relational void with material solutions, which is not to say that material stuff is bad. It is not to say that if God has given you much that you have to renounce it all and walk away like St. Francis of Assisi. It is to say that those things cut off from the one who has given them to you are no longer gifts, they become problems that enslave you. The first pitfall is pursuing material solutions to fill a deeper relational void. But the second is resisting Jesus' identity behind his resourcefulness. That as I mentioned a moment ago, once we discover that Jesus every day isn't just going to turn bread into more and more bread for us, that those things happen, they do happen. But Jesus also calls us to be drawn into responsibility. At some point, Jesus says, go back home and work for your family and make food, and be the light of salvation to your city. That there is a way of following Jesus that just expects Jesus to do everything for us miraculously, when what Jesus is doing is calling us into deeper and deeper levels of responsibility. And once we have that realization, there is a choice to be made. Are we willing to follow Jesus when it's not spectacular anymore, when we're not being wowed, at every corner, at every turn. But when we finally come to realize who Jesus is, that Jesus is the one who does become king, but not by force. He comes king by laying his life down, and he calls us to do the same. When we realize that's the identity behind the Jesus who turns a few loaves and fishes into food for seven or eight or 9,000 people, are we still willing to follow him or do we resist and go, that's not quite as fun and it's definitely not as easy. So these are the two pitfalls that I think Jesus is implicitly warning us or at least John is. So what is, as we are Heading toward the end here, what is Jesus really communicating? How is he actually the bread of life? And I think to answer this question adequately, we have to go back to the beginning. Don't worry, we're not going to walk through the entire Bible. But in the beginning, God created out of the abundance of what was in himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That there is no need in God, so what God creates, he creates out of the abundance of life that he longs to share. And so he creates the world as the spatial location of the place for you and I to learn to dwell with one another and with him. The reason we have a world is not because God wanted to see, like, oh, I wonder what they're capable of. 
No, we have a world because we are not disembodied beings. We're bodies, and we need a place to be. We need a place to dwell with God. So God created the world and gave it to Adam and Eve as a gift. This is the gift, the place where you're going to learn to dwell with one another, and you're going to learn to live with me. But what soon thereafter happened is, of course, we know the story. The serpent comes to Eve and deceives her, tricks her. And at the core of what the fall really is about, it's much more than disobedience. Disobedience is a very, very real thing. But if we only view the lens of doing good and sinning through the lens of obeying or disobeying, we're never really learning the heart of God. We think that what God wants from us is to be robots who just do stuff and don't do certain stuff. But what God wants from us is to learn to pursue his heart to embody his nature and his character. And so what's beneath the disobedience at the fall is misguided hunger. They had learned that God had given them a world of gifts, a garden of beautiful gifts. But there was one thing in that garden that was not a gift. And when they pursued that thing, because in their pursuit of that thing, what they thought they were getting was God's power to give gifts. If we can just get the power, we're not dependent on him anymore. We don't have to follow his rules. Essentially, let's cut out the middleman. Let's be our own gods. Let's have the power to create in and of ourselves. When they did that, everything that was gift to them turned into utility, which then became enslavement. Work became toilsome and difficult. Relationship was now convoluted with shame and guilt, and they hide themselves. And quickly what they realized is all of the gifts that God had given us are not the aim The gifts were supplemental to communion with God. And when they took the bite of the apple, and when they tried to cut God out as the middleman, everything that was a gift no longer was a gift. Or at least it was a gift with an underside. It was a gift that now required, it was problematic because it was cut off from the source. So this is what happens at the fall. The fall is less about disobedience, it's more about misplaced hunger. So how does this relate to Jesus in this passage? Jesus comes as the bread of life to free us from slavery to independence and draw us back into deeper communion with God. Friends, what Jesus is coming to do is to restore relationship. Yes, he has to forgive sins Yes, he has to tear down systems of oppression, systems that enslave us. But all of it isn't just so that we're sinless. It's so that we are free to live in communion with God and neighbor. And Jesus comes saying, look, all of these things my father blessed and he gave them to you. But you're trying to use them in a way they were never intended to be used to fill this deeper void in your life. And I'm telling you, I am the only way that that void will be filled. And if you trust me and allow me to fill that void in your life, then suddenly all these other things are actually gifts. 
Then the bread becomes gifts. Then your talent becomes gifts. Then your relationships with one another are gifts. Because you're no longer concerned about filling this void that you have inside. You realize, like they should have realized in the garden, that God is a much better steward of my life. I don't want the power that God has. I don't want to control everything. That God is sovereign, so I don't have to be. I can hand him over my life, and I can say, God, I'm going to be faithful with what you have given me. Whatever is taken from me, it's okay. Because my life is not in my own hands. My life is in your hands. So Jesus comes as the bread of life to free us from being enslaved to this pursuit of independence and to open our eyes to see that being interdependent, to being dependent on God is actually the most beautiful thing for us. It's how we were created to be. Seth, if you guys would come. Man, with that air off, it is quiet in here, ain't it? That's good. There are some of you in this place who have known what it is to follow Jesus. You have followed Jesus in hard times. You have followed Jesus in good times. You have followed Jesus through thick and thin, whatever comes your way. And there are some of you in the room who are intrigued about what it is to follow this man who claims to be the bread of life. Now, here's what I know for every one of us, wherever you fall on that spectrum, that it is so easy to get off course, to believe that Jesus has saved my soul, that I'll just do these few things to stay in good standing with God, but then really I want to go out and make the most of my life. And there is a way of making the most of your life that is absolutely beautiful and it is what God calls us to. And there is another way that is only subtly different that enslaves us that turns us in on ourselves and away from God and away from the world. Even good people like you and me that know God, people who have walked with God, but we've been encumbered by all the stuff, all the advertising, the marketing, the gravitational pull on our souls to do more, to be faster, to make something of yourself. And Jesus is saying, look, I've given you lots of good gifts. And I want you to use those gifts. But apart from being tethered to me in communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're only going deeper and deeper into enslavement. Stand with me if you would. I want us to take just a moment before we come to the table and ask the Holy Spirit to shine his light on the depths of our hearts. There's no one in this room who is exempt from the temptation of being drawn away by good things. Even good things that Jesus himself does. But if we want those things apart from him, we're asking for a curse, not a blessing. Holy Spirit, would you convict? Would you shine your light? Draw us closer to you. Draw us back to you. You alone are more than enough. There is no quantity or quality of bread that could ever fill our bellies long enough for us not to be hungry again. The way that our physical bodies are designed, we will be hungry again 
and again and again and again. And I pray that that would be a reminder to us that you are the only one who can fill the relational void, who can draw us into communion with the living God, who has designed this whole thing for us to live in communion with one another and with him. For those of you in the room who maybe have never chosen to follow Jesus for the first time, I want to invite you to follow Jesus by praying this prayer. Dear Jesus, let's all pray together. Let's do that. Dear Jesus, our hearts are easily deceived. And we want to trust you. That you alone have the words of life. And you are the bread of life. We pray that you would forgive us of our sins and draw us into life and friendship with you. And we ask it trusting in your name. Amen. Friends, I believe that whether that was the first or the thousandth time that you prayed a prayer like that, that Jesus will get into your heart and he will unclog some things. He'll reorder some things, reprioritize some things, maybe even remove some things. But as long as he is there and at the center, then you and I are in the best place possible because we are connected to the living God. We're going to come to the table of the Lord if our communion attendants would come. And as they are coming, I want to remind us that the communion attendants will serve us communion, but they will also remain in place. If you would like prayer for anything, after we've sang the doxology and received the benediction and been dismissed, come up here, please, and ask them to pray with you. They would love to. There's no thing that is too big or too small. And at this point, I would like to invite you to the table of the Lord. You can exit out the left-hand side of your row Come forward, receive the elements, take them back to your seats, and we will partake together in just a moment.
these elements, this meal, is a reminder, it's proof to us that the Christian life is not about utility or efficiency or maximizing and milking the most out of everything. It is, at its core, it is about communion. It is about joy and the sharing of love. Because if it were about any of those other things, this would be utterly insufficient. I mean, think about what we're doing to the world to look at. The climax of a worship service is eating this little piece of stale, tasteless cracker, really. But this reminds us, first of the night that Jesus met with his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion, but it also points forward to the coming day when we will be with Jesus and all sin and death have been removed and every wrong has been made right and we are celebrating around a table for eternity. So with these in your hands, Holy Spirit, come and make the elements more than just bread and juice. Make them the body and the blood of Jesus Christ's nourishment to our souls, life for our bodies. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said to his, and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Let us receive of the body of Christ, good Lord, Christ broken for you and for me. He is a good Lord, thank you. <laughs> and then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us receive the blood of Christ shed for the remission of our sins. Thanks be to God for these good gifts, church. Amen. Well, let us sing the doxology and then we will be dismissed. Amen and amen. It has been good for us to be together, gathered to worship the living God as the people of God. And now we have received his life once again. Go back out into all the world and give of that which you have received to a hungry and thirsty world. Go in peace, church. We'll see you next week.